0: Good morning, or good afternoon, wherever you may be, on this rotating globe, spinning in space, orbiting the sun, an average G-type star, uh, about four and a half light years away from anything else, kind of interesting. Tonight is a is a, is a morning of breaking news. There is some very interesting information which has just passed across my desk. In the last few minutes, um, a source that I have literally not talked to since Robin died, which is over a year and a half ago, out of the blue, sent me an email and then called earlier this evening and gave me some really extraordinary news that the source itself is looking to verify And we did not have a long conversation, but when I was able to dig into it, even at a minimal level, what this information purports to be, and our separate information, which we're going to talk about in the next three hours, uh, purports to be, is coinciding. And these are two sets of really independent sourcing, which... In this day and age of fake everything uh, is the only way you have in terms of process for even getting close to whatever is the truth. It's really a precious commodity these days, finding out the truth. You know, that's what science is all about. That's what I have been uh, trained for an awful lot of my professional life to sort through the noise, the chaff, the nonsense, the distractions, the deliberate false leads... I call them the mockingbird fluttering uh, on the ground, leading the cat away from the real stuff, from the nest, going back to my ornithological roots. Anyway, um, we have a very unrehearsed show this morning because there is really rather staggering breaking news. So let me put this in context. Item number one. For those of you who are new to the show, we're getting a lot of new listeners and even more intriguing subscribers to Club 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the universe, and you all know the inside joke, so I won't have to repeat it. Anyway, if you go to TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com, that's our URL, click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically... Breakthrough physics of the Russian pyramids, implications for what's going on right now for Saturday, October uh, 17th, actually Saturday, Sunday, here in the Land of Enchantment. Click on that banner with those extraordinary Nubian pyramids parched there in the desert at the uh, beginning of the Nile. As it flows north from Nubia to the uh, Mediterranean Sea through Egypt, Click on that. That will take you to tonight's show page, our guest page. Scroll down to Richard's items, or you can use the fast links um, under uh, the banner there, where it says fast links to Richard. Click on that. Takes you right to a very important item. A couple days ago, apropos of the everything is happening at once, um, the Beppy Colombo spacecraft on the morning of the 15th at about 11.58 a.m. Eastern Time, flew by the planet Venus. Now, why why should we care? Why should this be part of our um, uh, lexicon? Well, a few weeks before that, actually just about a month, there was a stunning announcement out of two radio astronomy groups, one here, one in Britain, it said they had detected in the mid-level atmosphere of Venus, floating about 30 miles above the ground, in the clouds, laced with sulfuric acid, but at moderate room temperature temperatures. These two groups, by means of radio, had detected what's called the phosphine absorption line, floating there, in the clouds of Venus at an extraordinary, far above steady state level for any known natural production source. On Earth, the only two ways you make phosphine is either in the guts of certain mammals, birds, like penguins, in their feces, they make phosphine. They don't make it, they actually just kind of put it together. And microbes do this on Earth, certain species of microbes and big artificially built chemical factories like DuPont or Monsanto. They make phosphine as part of uh, many many you know, chemical chains for the production of better living through chemistry. But there are no known other natural sources of phosphine in every environment we've looked at here on the planet. Now, the way you play the game, you know, if you're really doing science, as you look at this example, that phosphine is what would be called a biosignature molecule, meaning if you find it on Earth, you found life either microbes or maybe some birds, or maybe a DuPont chemical factory. but you found life artificial, living stuff, not part of natural rocks and rills and waves and whatever. Life. Most incredible mystery in the universe. Life. What what is it? Anyway, you found a signature. That's the way the game is played. So two days ago, at almost noon, Eastern time, this spacecraft, this dual spacecraft, Beffi Colombo, being flown by the Europeans and the Japanese as a dual orbited mission. When they get to Mercury in 2025, they're going to release both spacecraft. They'll go into separate polar orbits for an in-depth study of the innermost planet of the system, Mercury, which, by the way, is in retrograde by now. So that's going to be part of our discussion this morning, talking about frequencies and, and waves. Anyway, so this spacecraft, Bevi Colombo, is on its way to Mercury to go into orbit someday in 2025, years from now. In the meantime to drop the orbit into the inner solar system because it's moving very fast around the sun you've got to subtract the energy somehow and the way they do that now is a long-standing technique of interplanetary billiard balls where you basically send a spacecraft past a planet in a certain way and its motion will either add energy to the spacecraft in which case it will fling it ultimately out of the whole solar system that's how the Pioneers and Voyagers and Galileos and New Horizons spacecraft have made their exit by successive encounters with the giant outer planets in what's called a billiard ball maneuver. And you gain energy and ultimately you're traveling faster than the sun can keep you bound to it through its gravitational field. You escape the solar system. You achieve solar system escape velocity. Well, you invert the technique You can use a planet to basically suck energy out of the spacecraft talk about David and Goliath anyway and you can drop the orbit of your spacecraft to the inner parts of the solar system by stealing energy and feeding it in appropriate encounter geometry into a couple of planets like the earth or like Venus so that's what happened two days ago in the morning just just a little before noon eastern time the Colombo spacecraft encountered Venus in a way that dropped its orbit to eventually approach Mercury, which is hard to get to, you know, because it's in there tucked close to the sun's gravity field. And you've got to subtract an awful lot of energy to get down to those altitudes, you know, 30-some million miles from the sun. Anyway, so the Colombo spacecraft put on this maneuver a couple days ago. And during the maneuver... A set of onboard instruments was turned on, as we said to you a few days ago, in a hope that as they flew by at a little over 6,000 miles remember, Venus is about the size of the Earth, it's almost a twin, the Earth is almost 8,000, Venus is about 7,500 miles across so they flew by well within the diameter of Venus from the surface must have been a stunning sight. In fact, if you click on that link, number one, Colombo flies by Venus and route to Mercury. There's a really set of cool videos to show you from the cameras on board what the flyby look like, which is kind of cool. But the really important part is, apropos of the discussion several weeks ago that they may have found in the atmosphere of Venus, we now have another set of data points because the instrumentation... On the spacecraft work perfectly. Data on the phosphine levels apparently has been recorded. It will be replayed. It will then be analyzed. And sometime in the next few days to maybe a week, depending upon how unbelievable the data is, there will be an announcement. And the announcement is probably going to be Bepi Colombo provides third confirmation of bioactive molecule floating in Venus' atmosphere to a level of millions of times what there should be unless something really intriguing was going on. Okay, so that's the backdrop. A few minutes ago, just before airtime, I got a phone call, as I said, from a source that I have not talked to since since Robin passed away. And the source said, I want to give you a heads up sometime according to this source's sources, who they believe because of the previous track record, very positive track record. Remember, we're dealing in this realm, this spooky realm of intelligence and sources, so everything has to be calibrated, and you certainly don't believe it until you see it from at least more than one source. Two, hopefully three, that was our gold standard back when I worked for Cronkite three independent sources now of course it's very hard to know if sources are independent because everybody's in touch with each other through social media so you really have that problem is this really an independent confirmation It ultimately comes all down to process how do you decide a source or a set of sources are telling you the truth it's not easy I'm telling you, this is the hardest part of this job is to figure out the noise from the signal and do it reliably. So anyway, this source calls me up and says the president of the United States somehow as part of the official government command authority is going to make a major revelation on the extraterrestrial slash UFO discussion by Tuesday by October nineteenth, and I said to this source, "You're kidding you know it's obvious this is a ritual, you know nineteen point five October you know tenth tenth month, nineteen point five hour in the twenty twentieth year they this people love those numerological significators now. The source and I agree that just because it falls on the resonance date doesn't mean the information is real, does not mean it's accurate. It could be another of this presidency's extraordinary diversions, um, crying wolf, crying something. But keep in mind, it does synchronize with this parallel set of events that I have been modeling from the beginning, the COVID-19 at Al, all the bizarre activities surrounding this president, this administration, you know, his finally getting COVID, rushing across Lafayette Square, holding a Bible up upside down, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs decrying that he was, quote, used politically. Then suddenly all the Joint Chiefs are missing. They're all in quarantine. Simultaneous with the president being missing in the hospital with COVID? In other words, is it an accident, is it a coincidence that the entire National Command Authority, including except for random, rare, brief appearances, has gone into hiding and may be doing something totally separate from what we have been told? So it was into this crucible of possibility that tonight's data dropped very neatly by saying that by next Tuesday, you know, 48 hours from now, there could be a startling major official announcement on the UFO ET front. Now, that takes us to item number two. A couple, three days ago, the president was talking to uh, Fox News Business at the crack of dawn, and was asked specifically about the UFO question. And as you'll see from clicking on that link, segued immediately into a very bizarre um, kind of semi-rant on the uh, coronavirus pandemic, the election, and his... um, Readiness of the military to meet any potential threats. When he's asked by Miss Bartiromo from Fox, Mr. President, are there UFOs? The president answers, Well, I'm going to have to check on that. I'll tell you this we have now created a military the likes of which have never had before in terms of equipment. And then he goes into this long rant on the preparedness connecting it, obviously, in the listener or viewer's minds with the question that the correspondent asked from Fox. Are there UFOs? Why was his go-to answer couched in a military vein? So that's kind of what we have to report tonight. Um, We're going to kind of obviously stand by. Uh, Whatever, you know, happens could be happening even... um, even before the show ends, you know, given that this is a period of very dramatic background physics changes, which is what the majority of our conversation this morning with Charlie Zeiss is going to be about. Before I leave my news items, I do want to kind of set the table in a way. Last weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, we discussed at some length this really astonishing discovery I've made on the interactive Uh, CDC for Europe website which is item number three you go to that link, you click on it that will take you to a page which is interactive in terms of statistics and daily death counts for people from the COVID-19 virus coming through the European CDC from all over the world item number four just below that is a screen grab of the graph from a few days ago Um, and you can see The most remarkable aspect is that exquisitely rhythmic, precise, up-and-down, sawtooth pattern. And even though the absolute numbers vary dramatically by factors of 2 to 1 to even 3 to 1, the periodicity every seven days of the valleys and the peaks marches inexorably from left to right in the graph, and each new day adds to exactly the same pattern, which is averaged now across over 185 countries all over the world. And the interactive uh, item at number three allows you to go in and mass statistics from any two countries, any five countries, any seven regions, whatever mix you want to put in to match the rhythmic rise and fall of this death count. It's irresolutely there. It's not explained by some who tried to link it to, you know, a seven day, you know, reporting schedule by some health departments in some nations. The problem is that that graph there is the sum of the average of over 185 separate governments. If there was anything like delays that were not in sequence with this seven day pattern, they would add as noise And ultimately, there'd be no pattern left at all. Instead, the pattern is there. Now, is it unique to COVID-19? Is it somehow endemic in those who are going to catch the disease and then for whom it is ultimately fatal? Is this applicable to deaths from all over the world due to natural causes, not stepping off bridges or doing dumb things like committing suicide, but due to natural causes is this really reflective of death all over planet Earth for some reason sink to precisely seven times the solar day or the geometric lock of the spin of the planet to our orbit around the sun? Item number five. Um, I don't want to get into a long rant tonight. This is the basically the latest compendium of a whole bunch of studies on The efficacy of masks versus not wearing masks Um, for those that you are kind of data bent go there look at the sources look at the balance look at what's said the error bars the uncertainties the statistics the, the countries that are using masks have driven this virus almost out of existence the countries and the regions that are not the numbers are totally out of control and again this is across extraordinarily differences in political systems so if you say somehow this is a massive global conspiracy, you you really think conspiracies are easier to pull off than, than I do. Anyway, item number six. While all this is going on on planet Earth, and we'll get back to how it comes back to uh, Charlie's research momentarily, at the same time, in the same time frame where, you know, we've got this remarkable flyby of Venus and new data on the possible presence of something indicative of living things, living systems, the phosphine count, in the same time period, all this coming Thursday, I believe it's Thursday the 20th, uh, is it Thursday? No, it's Wednesday, okay, because the 19th is Tuesday. So on Wednesday, um, the NASA spacecraft, which has been exploring um, the little Bennu asteroid, about a thousand feet across, called OSIRIS-REx. It will touch down briefly to grab a sample, um, possibly up to several pounds depending upon the conveyance of the nitrogen and the grab sampler and the size of the chunks, etc. But it could be a really substantial sample from the surface of this Bennu asteroid. It will then put it in a container in the spacecraft. It will lift off begin preparations for putting it inside a reentry vehicle that will make the long journey from Bennu's orbit to Earth's orbit, where it will land sometime, I believe, next year. I think it's going to take uh, uh, maybe uh, three quarters of a year or so to get the sample back so it can enter over the uh, Midwestern part of the country and land in Utah to be picked up like previous such samples from the Stardust mission uh, have been handled. Anyway, that's all going on. What's so interesting is that because of some innovative research into the internal gravity field of Bennu, the news this week, and again you can read it there, um, the scientists before their grab sample have been able to do remote control surveys showing that Bennu is chock full of organic compounds on its surface hmm, has a very intriguing regular geometry like ribs extending from the poles, the points, when you look at a picture, it looks like a kind of a eroded, really, really mashed up diamond with two opposing poles at the tips of the the pyramids. And then, sorry about that. And then by analyzing the, orbit of the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft around Bennu over the last year or so since it's been in close orbit they've been able to map the internal gravity field and lo and behold in total accordance with the ancient ancient highly eroded spaceship model which is our model for these NASA and European encounters because they are not telling us that they're really ancient spaceships they keep calling them asteroids More cover stories. Anyway, it turns out from this incredible in-depth gravity analysis they were able to carry out, the interior of Bennu is hollow with mass concentrations in certain regions. The very center is a hollow sphere and there are a series of hollows extending around the equator connected by these masses of tube-like protuberances extending from the north and south pole. In other words, it looks, in terms of the gravity field, like the interior of a damn spaceship if the gravity is modeling density in empty regions on the interior reflecting the density of constructed areas or open, hollow areas for carrying out operations in zero gravity. Anyway, we're going to know a lot more in the next few days as the sample retrieved from Bennu by NASA by the OSIRIS-REx mission makes its long route to Earth. And in essence, we're looking at these objects as eroded pyramidal forms in space, mirroring, in some cases, the geometry of pyramidal forms here on planet Earth, which is the perfect segue to my guest of the morning whose name is Charlie Zeese. And let me give you a little thumbnail sketch for those of you who are new to the program. Charlie first got interested in the subject of Russian pyramids about three years ago while watching David Wilcox's wisdom teaching series. Amazed at the extensive scientific pyramid research compiled by some of Russia's leading scientists and finding no Russian pyramids available for sale, Charlie set out to make pyramids for his own use and research. After verifying a number of research projects he could directly undertake and noticing tremendous personal health improvements when he exposed himself to his own Russian pyramid geometry, that geometry and Russian pyramids as a topic became for Charlie an all ensuing passion. And so without further ado, Charlie Zeiss, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Thank you, Richard. Well, we only got a couple of minutes till the bottom of the hour, so I just thought we kind of set this up. For those of you who are not familiar with your background, you were not always a Sterling Citizen Scientist. You actually had a another day job. You want to kind of tell folks what that was? <laughs> I I I assume you're talking
1: about my Wall Street career, but yeah, I I worked on Wall Street for um, uh you know, most of my life up until about um uh, eight years ago and at that point I started uh, trying to devote my life to things that were probably a bit more uh, beneficial to mankind and so uh, one thing led to another and as you said several years ago I got involved with the uh, uh, Russian pyramids uh, due to uh, uh, you know David Wilcox uh, disclosure of, of that information on his series on uh, Gaia a number of years ago so mm-hmm. uh it's, it has become a passion, and what I'm really enjoying about it is is that uh, the science, uh, not only about the results uh, of the pyramids, is is sound, and uh, uh, but also uh, it's giving me an opportunity, and that's what we're going to explore tonight to to delve into some of these more esoteric topics uh, that. Uh, we don't learn about in school.
0: And, uh, <laughs> you think? So- Charlie, you think? 99.99% yes, I- of the important stuff they never get around to teaching you. That is correct.
1: And we'll get into that, obviously, tonight. But uh, you, I've developed an appreciation of the harmonic, uh, harmonious nature of the universe uh, through this process. And... You know, that's, I think, one of the things that will come out in our discussions tonight, that uh, yeah, this truly is a harmonious universe that we live in.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, we're actually almost uh, at the bottom of the hour, so why don't we hold it there? My guest this morning is um, Charlie Zeese, former stockbroker kind of guy, and a, had a revelation one day. That there was more to the universe than Wall Street, than bulls and bears. And boy, did that open up a doorway for Charlie. And of course, you know, me and a lot of other people listening. You're on the other side of midnight. We're going to be talking this morning about frequencies, technologies to manipulate the field. And is someone, in fact, doing that right now? And is this why, among other things, everything seems to be happening at once? We shall return.
2: Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyper-dimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcast heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday morning, October 17th, here in the land of enchantment, the wee hours before Sunday, dawning. That bright object, by the way, just in the east before dawn, that is Venus. And if you look over in the west, that reddish, brilliant point of light is Mars, which is closer... Uh, this week than just about uh, any time in the last 17 years which is the time from one opposition of Mars to the next because of its larger orbit the last time Mars was this close um, Robin and I and some friends were on the uh, on the hill in Flagstaff, Mars Hill where Percival Old built his observatory and we got a chance one night to see Mars through that telescope, that astonishingly historic 24-inch uh, Alvin Clark refractor. And we got to see Mars then, back in 2003, as it had not been visible for 60,000 years. Now, we're not talking a lot of distance, difference, you know, a few thousand miles. Anyway, Charlie, I could kind of get lost on that all evening. Uh, where do we want to I'll tell you what, we should probably begin by telling people, the new audience, what Charlie got obsessed with about pyramids and why the pyramids that he became, you know, kind of fell in love with look nothing at all like the pyramids we're all familiar with uh, in terms of Egypt or, let's say, China for the really, you know, uh, avant-garde period aficionado. Why do the Russian pyramids look so damn different
1: <laughs> that's that's a, a good uh, entry point the, the the Russian pyramids are designed based upon uh, a specific geometry and that geometry turns out to be the geometry of the Phi spiral uh, the spiraling of torsion fields is what powers the universe and and gives it life so it's really mimicking uh, that geometry and that is unique amongst uh, pyramids uh, uh, around the world sometimes you'll find this um, uh, geometry uh, slanted or oriented in a different direction for example the slant angle of the Russian pyramid which is the angle from the ground going up to the vertical is the same as the apex angle or vertex angle of the Giza pyramid
0: oh uh, so we're so, looking at kind of like a mirror image in 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 numbers that that's right. topologically that's right. give us the same ultimate topology but a different geometry because they're not the same
1: that's right but there is that key component where there's a a striking similarity it's an overlap it's an overlap like a marriage. okay that's right so there's something very special about that relationship and i you know continue to, to to focus on that how it relates to the to the giza pyramid but that is in summary the um uh, you know, the, the, the reason why these are so unique, I'd say also that uh, because it was done, di- you'll find this geometry of the phi-spiral. Uh, Marshall Lefferts calls it um, uh, the phi-scaling angle. He wrote a book last year called Cosmometry, Exploring the Holofractal Nature of the Cosmos. And he found this geometry, of course, it's in, it's in our DNA. Uh, It's in the cochlea, in our ears. Uh, It is. I have found it in um, all of the Hindu temples and Buddhist temples. It's in a lot of our steeples and our churches uh, throughout the world. Synagogues, mosques all use it. So it's something that's been around for uh, thousands of years. Well, look at the Transamerica Pyramid in San Francisco. That's right. A different angle, but, but very
0: steep. That's right. So um, so when that, should we get to your diagrams? Because I think this is one of those things where, unless you see a picture, it's going to go over a right. lot of people's heads.
1: That's right. So what what we're going to talk about tonight, I, I decided, Richard, and I haven't even had a chance to talk to you about this, but I'm uh, in the process of writing a book on the Russian pyramids. And it's going to be uh, multi-dimensional uh, in the sense that I'm going to be talking <clears> about <throat> the relationships between, that I've just mentioned. Uh, I'm going to get into the
0: geometry and so forth. But, See, now, if you uh, figure out a way to mention Trump in the title, you'll sell a million copies before you get off the show, okay? <laughs> well, let me think about Everybody that. Everybody else is doing it. See, <laughs> if, if I'm right... This bizarre news we got tonight, which fits into my model that nothing we've seen from this presidency bears any relationship to reality at all by design. It's all been a massive, overwhelming distraction from something really amazing going on out there in the dark. And it may become public as little as 48 hours from now. I mean, it's ultimately grounded in this secret physics which really runs the universe and which you're reconstructing re-engineering back engineering from ancient and modern examples built by certain folks around the planet that i guess want us to know how this stuff works now well that is so on point um
1: to, to give a little context before we get into the slides. I, I, I want the audience to to you know understand a few uh, basic points. One, uh, Richard, in fact, your audience should know this very well that the platonic solids, I like to call them the platonic forms because they can change and morph very easily uh, in the quantum world. but those are, uh, the fundamental uh, that's a that's a process that's fundamental to uh, creation and also to scaling uh, from the subatomic to the to the galactic. So let's call that the process because that's what this is. We don't know a tremendous amount about that process because, it's very difficult, other than some electron micrographs that have been done,
0: to actually get pictures. but Do that you, has Charlie? Been done. Sorry to interrupt, but do you have an example of the of the platonic solids? Because I think we should put there is you know kind of like your one A. You know, <laughs> I should have I should have put that in there. The one you have I, with all the colors, each of yeah, the yeah. Different- I didn't I
1: didn't bring a picture with me, or I didn't put one up, I, unfortunately, but. You have five platonic solids uh, that are. I'm going to call them the, the 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 major forms because these can change and 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 be modified by a variety of different processes. But you've got um, the icosahedron, uh, the dodecahedron, the cube, the octahedron, and um, the tetrahedron. So. Those are the five basic Platonic solids, and the process that uh, people have known about literally for since the Vedic texts uh, in, have have indicated the significance of these forms in the creation of our of our reality. So that process uh, is fundamental to creation what the pyramid is and I'll use this as a a kind of a contradistinction that is essentially a scaling pathway of creation and so really what what when I went to write the started to write the book I knew that I didn't have what I felt was the missing link here which was to a way to integrate the pathway of the, of the pyramid, the torus, the phi-scaling angle, this unique geometry, with the process of creation, which incorporates and is fundamentally composed of this, this uh, progression and, and, and formation of the platonic forms. So, uh, with that as background, what i what I did, I was uh, in preparation for the book, I started rereading uh, David Wilcox' uh, Convergence Trilogy because it's a great source for all things that we're going to talk about tonight to give me some ideas. And you know I ran across a uh, a piece from uh, a book by a gentleman named Robert Lawler. Uh, sacred geometry philosophy and practice and and uh, David had a and and now we can go to in fact uh, slide one for for the listeners because this is where we're gonna going start uh, on that first slide in the bottom left hand corner uh, David and in fact this comes from uh, from from one of David's books there was a ratio or excuse me a listing of of these uh, five platonic forms and uh, the ratio of the uh, side length of each of these in a nested form. And we should talk about what that means for a moment for people who are not familiar with this. Uh, there's been a, a, a history of of, of of thinking of the platonic forms in a nested uh, fashion, similar to the Russian dolls that's that 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 nest inside of each other so with that as an idea not only uh, has it been a historical you uh, know, way of viewing this but people have also done research showing that certain chemical compounds uh, have uh, nested within them these very platonic forms so uh, but what I saw, and if we, if if you look at that uh, item number one, you'll notice that the uh, on the bottom left-hand corner, Lawler's dimensions of nested platonic forms. He essentially has put he put this together as a uh, essentially like an octave on a keyboard, and we'll get into that in a minute, but. Uh, he's, he listed these forms you, you look at the top of that diagram The, uh, the side length of the central icosahedron uh, As he uh, described it Was 1 over phi squared And then as you move through the progression uh, Each of these sides gets larger Until you get to what I'll call the octave icosahedron uh, Which had a side length of phi Well when I saw that I did the math, and that's not really hard, but that becomes a ratio of phi cubed, or 4.236. Well, that just so happens to be the slant, the ratio of the slant height to the base of the Russian pyramid. So I knew I had to get a copy of the book to, uh, to to follow up on this. So I got a copy. Of Robert Lawler's book and began to read it. Well, this is probably, for those of you who are really interested in sacred geometry, this is the best text that I've ever read on the topic. And interestingly enough, in the last chapter, he has, uh, or the last chapter is devoted to the platonic solids and that's where you get this information and so what I've done for the uh, for the audience here uh, is the top paragraph describes from from his page 103 this relationship that I uh, that I uh, just talked about so I knew I was on something what I wanted to do, uh, be, the scientist in me wanted to recreate exactly what he was doing but I didn't really have the, uh, the trigonometric expertise to do that without some help so I found a book uh, that does a masterful job of uh, defining all of the ratios and the side lengths and the volumes and so forth of all of these uh, called A Geometric Analysis of the Platonic Solids and Other semi-regular Polyhedra by uh, Kenneth McLean. And so, what I decided to do was to actually go and recreate that for myself, and to see uh, whether these things actually matched up. And in fact, of course, they do. If And if we go to slide number two, I'll kind of show you the results and show you where and how all of this begins to to develop. On slide two, the basic model of the phi cubed Russian pyramid. On the left, that diagram I did in, in uh, some online software <laughs> called GeoGebra. It
0: looks like an but old von Braun rocket.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, what I did was I drew four four circles, or they could be you could deem them to be spheres. Um, and this was how I originally developed the geometry of the Russian pyramid to begin with. And what I'm doing, I uh, will get to the chart in a moment. But you're going to see that I've mapped uh, this on the basis of the the, the the results that I achieved by deter in determining the diameter of the circumscribing spheres. Uh, of each of these uh, platonic solids. But anyway, by taking 3077, if you go up to the chart, I'll just, we'll have to get start somewhere. You'll see on the ve- bottom line, uh, on the right hand column under diameter, you'll see 3.0777. That's the diameter of the circle or a sphere that, uh, uh, of the icosahedron with a side length of uh, phi or 1.618. Well that's what I used as my bottom um, cube. Now to develop a phi spiral pyramid you can take any, any starting point, divide the sphere's diameter by phi Uh, which I did, and move up to the next uh, sphere. It has a diameter 1.901, then divided that by 1.618 or phi to come up with 1.18, and then next to um, 0.726. That's the way I developed it. Now we're going to see some really interesting uh, initial results. Let's go up and look at the chart and go over that uh, for a minute. You see that I've, I've recreated in the first column of that chart the side lengths, uh, of, and turned those from from sacred geometry uh, to into actual numbers. We're so, still yeah, on number two, right? Yes, I'm still on number two. Okay. So if you look at the icosahedron, we came, uh, Lawler had told us that that side length was 0.382. Uh, When I went to uh, Kenneth McLean's book, I was able to determine the relationship between the side length to the radius, and uh, each of those relationships is listed in that column that I got from his book, and that gave me the radius, and then you just, of course, multiply by two to get the diameter. Now, what's interesting, and this is where uh, the analysis starts to, to come together, we're going to see, uh, I've, I've grouped uh, the, these uh, forms into basically uh, three groups plus a, an octave icosahedron. You'll see in yellow, those are the icosahedron numbers. Um, the second line is in blue, that's the octahedron. Now it has a diameter of 1.0, or 1.0. Or Uh, compared to uh, the diameter of the inner icosahedron, 0.726. The important thing to to notice is that the next three that are on the list, the star tetrahedron, the cube, and the dodecahedron, when you go through the mathematics, they all have a circumscribing sphere that is identical at uh, 1.7321. and that's an important thing for what we'll, we'll we'll pick up on that later. So basically, when you stack uh, our, uh, our nest, excuse me these uh, these solids into a, uh, a nesting format, you essentially find that that everything, and we should stop, and I should I should digress for a minute, uh, all of the research that has been done by Buck Mr. Fuller, By Nassim and others, uh, Nassim Haramein and others indicate that all creative activity starts inside the sphere. So that's why uh, this that idea is so critical. We're not going to go into the physics of that this evening, but uh, there's a concept called the vector equilibrium. Uh, and we'll be talking about that, but within the vector equilibrium, which is a geometric form, uh, resides these spheres which can essentially uh, morph or change into these various plasonic solid forms. So all three of those, cubed uh and star tetrahedron, are all essentially in a nested state in exactly the same sphere. Now, the key takeaway from this diagram, you'll notice that the diameter uh, of 0.7266, which is the uh, calculation of the icosahedron, the inner icosahedron is exactly the same as that on the left, and the one at the bottom, the icosahedron, is 3.077, which is equivalent to the sphere on the bottom. So what we figured out for now is that even though these platonic solids are are not going to be identical to the inner spheres that we came up with to define the Phi cubed uh, 76.345 degree geometry the, as I'm calling them, the anchor uh, octaves of the icosahedron are exactly the same. So what, what's the takeaway from that? Let's go to slide number three. Okay. And we'll see that basically what've we've, what we've come up with, and this the rest, if we take out the two spheres that were in the middle, which were essentially the way to define uh, the geometry of the pyramid, we have essentially come up with already, the, the framework of the, of the progression of the uh, platonic forms, and we're gonna be filling in the blanks on how that happens as we proceed uh, through our presentation tonight. But suffice it to say, the geometry of uh, Phi cubed uh, is the, was the key takeaway that got me started on this um, on this journey. Now, the next slide uh, on the very last page of Lawler's uh, uh, book.
0: Is when you page, say next slide, you mean number four?
1: This is I'm sorry. This is now number four. Okay. Yeah. And slide four uh, comes right out of the last page of Robert Lawler's book. And before we go into this I, I probably ought to give the, the listeners Some Background on Robert Lawler himself Oh that'd be cool Yeah, Robert Lawler uh, Wrote this book in 1982 And so this this form Has been in print At least in his book For almost 40 years now uh, And And there is no explanation, very, very, or very little explanation, about this uh, form that he gives in the book. And I can basically uh, read to you from the book what he has to say about this chart, and this is it. These same five regular volumes are classically drawn in such a way that they are contained within nine concentric circles with each solid touching the sphere which circumscribes the next solid within it. This design will yield many important relationships and is derived from the discipline called corpo transparente of contemplating shapes constructed of transparent material placed one within the other. Now, here's the key takeaway this next sentence. This instruction was given to many of the great men of the Renaissance, including Leonardo... Brunelleschi, and Georgi by Fra Luca Pacioli. Now that is all that there is to uh, to give you some context. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about Lawler himself. Lawler uh, spent many years studying uh, sacred geometry with the daughter of R.A. Schwaller de Lubitz. Mm. Now, Schwaller uh, did a an epic book which I have not read called uh, 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 On the Egyptian Pyramids but Robert actually translated that into English from France or from French hmm. and I get the feeling from from what he said in that paragraph this chart has been around for hundreds of years and if it's been around for hundreds from what I've learned about other uh, uh objects of the, or information of this type, it probably has been around for thousands of years.
0: For someone so, who wants a perhaps more accessible entry point into Schwaller de Lubitz, who was this French symbolist who went to Egypt and measured a whole bunch of temples and found all these remarkable geometric correlations, like the Egyptians were trying to communicate in their architecture, their literal cosmology, how they saw how they calculated the universe. They made it manifest in their architecture. So if you want an entry point, which is very interesting and readable, you go to John Anthony West and a book called Serpent in the Sky, which is John's, um, we were colleagues, friends, you know, he died a little while ago, a terrible loss. Um, anyway, this John's kind of cracking the code of Lubitz. Serpent in the Sky, Um, that's where you'll find some of his really amazing quotes about Egypt, how it looks more like a legacy than an invention, meaning the really good stuff is the most ancient stuff. And then as you go forward in time, instead of progressing like Western civilization, it devolves. It gets less and less precise as you go on through the thousands of years, like it was given to humankind the Egyptians, in some form, as a legacy, including through Deleuze, the analysis of the Russian, Russian, of the uh, Egyptian temples and the discovery of this identical math and geometry. All right. So, what we're going to be talking about um,
1: is this diagram and This diagram, just to give people a preview, I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. Is as a matter um, of
0: fact, we are in the top of the hour. (laughs) So hold there.
1: uh, We'll hold off, but uh, this is going to be the diagram that we're going to be exploring uh, for the balance, uh, you know, of of the the research.
0: Hold it there. My guest this morning is Charlie Zeiss. Charlie Zeiss. Sorry, I keep thinking of the optics people. And we're talking about residents, the idea that these pyramids, these ancient manifestations of this totally fluid geometry, they're not tombs. They're not archaic libraries. They are literally machines, hyperdimensional machines in stone. And the modern ones are made of fiberglass steel and wood and they resonate with the physics like you cannot believe you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland
2: we shall return thanks for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I wanna thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.